It's Tuesday, October 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Coronavirus case counts continue to rise in many places as the country fights to contain the spread. But throughout the pandemic, there have been some bright spots in states' responses. President Trump gave states the opportunity to call their own shots, and some have been more successful than others. Speaking to public health experts and officials, Politico has a list of which states had the best pandemic response, whether it's fighting the virus, managing the economic fallout, or getting kids back to school. Tucker Doherty, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for Who Did It Best. Next, some more bad news on the vaccine front. The share of Americans who say they are likely to get a COVID vaccine as soon as it's available is dropping. Only 58% of the public say they would get vaccinated when it becomes available. The number is even less when it comes to communities of color. There is a high level of distrust in vaccines as everything about them has been politicized. Ed Silverman, senior writer at Stat News, joins us for what the latest numbers say. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So, like many other states, they at first had a fairly strict lockdown. You know, they closed a lot of businesses, closed schools, and they've been very cautious at what they choose to reopen, when they reopen it. They wait for things to seem safe enough. They wait for their health experts to say this activity, you know, opening the outdoor areas of dining is safe now. Joining us now is Tucker Doherty, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Tucker. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the response to the pandemic from all of the states in the country. When President Trump at the beginning of this really decided to delegate the pandemic response to the states, let them call their own shots. They know their states the best. Every state has different characteristics that require different things to act on. So some states really acted aggressively to contain COVID-19. Others didn't have the same approach. There at Politico, you guys compiled a list of of which states were doing the best, and you put it into three different categories, how they were fighting the virus, specifically managing the economic fallout, and then schools, how to reopen the schools and get kids back to in-person instruction. So let's start uh, talking about the response to fighting the virus. One of the states that you said that did a really good job there was Vermont. Uh, tell us how they handled their response. Vermont, as you may know, it's, it's right next door to a lot of states that got hit early on. And they did record some early cases and death already in, in late March and April. And so they were definitely at risk of getting hit hard, just like other states nearby, like New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts. You know, when we interviewed, we, we interviewed their health commissioner, we've interviewed some academics, researchers, things like that. There wasn't so much a single secret sauce or some trick they did. A lot of it is just that they listened to the health experts they had in the state. They took a cautious approach and they didn't really make politicized assumptions. So one of the things that came up a lot in our reporting was, as you may remember from March and April, it was New York City that was hit hard first. There were also some cases in the Seattle area. And so there was this sense that some people had early on that this wasn't going to be something that affected everyone, that this might be an urban problem or it might be some specific issue with New York subway system or something like that. And I think what stands out about Vermont's approach is that they were never complacent. They didn't say just because they had a rural population or just because they weren't seeing a huge wave at first, they didn't assume it wasn't going to hit them. So like many other states, they at first had a fairly strict lockdown. 
you know, they closed a lot of businesses, closed schools, and they've been very cautious at what they choose to reopen, when they reopen it. They wait for things to seem safe enough. They wait for their health experts to say this activity, you know, opening the outdoor areas of dining is safe now. And another aspect of it, and I think this is crucial just because, as I mentioned, they had neighbors that were hard hit, is that they were also willing to have policies that make it so that when people came from out of state, from places that were experiencing spikes of the virus, they asked people to quarantine. They asked people to either stay at home for two weeks or if that was something that was too difficult for some people, they also let people take a test after a week of arriving. Now, some other states have done that. New York did that as well. Vermont has also just sort of been more stringent with that. So, for example, with New York, they have a similar travel policy, but they said if you're from a state that has 10 new infections per 100,000 residents, uh, you need to quarantine yourself. Vermont was twice as strict as that. They said five per 100,000 residents. The other aspect of Vermont's travel restrictions is that they were sort of very specific about wanting to know where the virus is. So it wasn't just by state, it was even by county. So if you're a Vermont resident and you traveled right over the border into some counties in neighboring New York or or New Hampshire and so forth, if those counties were having a spike, even if the state as a whole was looking fine on the statistics, they recognized, hey, if you're in an area with high spread, there's a chance you're going to bring it back. At the same time, they're aware that it's a trade-off with business, with people's willingness to withstand lockdown. And their, their governor, Phil Scott, he's a former business owner himself, and he's been very in touch with the business owners there. And I think what they recognize is that no matter what you're telling people they need to do, you need people to be willing to listen. You need them to comply. And so you need to be flexible in your approach. You need to give people an out, you know, if there's some sane way of still enjoying some of the normal activities of life without keeping everything shut down forever. And so overall, they've been able to both keep cases very low and keep deaths very low, but also their economy is looking pretty good right now. Their unemployment as of August was, I think, 4.5 or 4.8%, which is just as good as many of the states that resisted lockdown. So I, I think in a lot of ways. And even on the numbers, as you were mentioning, you know, they had fewer than 60 people died from it there. So Definitely really good on the numbers on that one. I did want to move through a few of these other ones as well. Seattle kind of became a little success story after initially really being where the first case was, the first big outbreak at the Life Care Center of Kirkland. You know, it was a big problem at that nursing home, but they turned it around after that. uh, As they started learning, they put a lot of aid towards nursing homes and caring for the people there, and they were able to really turn around those numbers. The number one thing you can say about what Washington State did right is that they were not only fast, there were a lot of places that were fast, but they were coordinated. So when it came to having mayors and governors on the same track, instead of holding competing press conferences and disagreeing with each other, they let health officials lead their messaging rather than elected officials. Often when you put an elected official in front of the mic, they might slip or they might say something that a public health official wouldn't say in the, in the same place. And they also made sure that they were coordinating across the state government between different agencies, the health department, the housing department. So, for example, when they started to see an uptick in cases on the homeless populations in the area, first of all, they were able to catch it really quickly. And then they were able to direct resources to it and sort of nip it in the bud. And you're right, they had that first outbreak in the nursing homes and and they were sort of the 
case study for the nation as a whole to learn that that was one of the, the sort of the soft underbelly of our response was vulnerability in nursing homes. And to their credit, once they recognized that was a problem, they put in rules, they put in resources, and they really made a, a special effort to say, everyone needs to pitch in on this, but there are some places that just need a little more attention. Michigan was also a success story in closing the racial disparities. We've seen how COVID attacks communities of colors in different ways. They set up task force to help with uh, walk-up and pop-up sites for testing. Um, so they really paid attention to their vulnerable populations there. It's important to point out that it's something they improved over time on. If you look at the aggregate stats, they don't necessarily look like that story because they did struggle early on. Their first wave of deaths was way disproportionately African-American. But as you said, they, they formed the task force. They, they identified neighborhoods that weren't having enough testing. They recognized, for example, you, you hear a lot about drive-in testing sites in states, but a lot of the most vulnerable people don't have a car. And they recognized that some neighborhoods needed an option for people to just walk in on foot. And as you said, they've seen good results. They've essentially closed the disparity. Now, it remains to be seen whether that will always remain the case. And of course, you can't undo the problems they saw early on. But it was definitely something where they were, they were responsive and they were focused on the problem. And I think you could argue that really they've made the most progress on that compared to any other state. Let's talk about how some of the states managed the economic fallout. Some standouts were Colorado for taking quick action on unemployment, really uh, fighting a lot of fraud there. Iowa also and uh, Minnesota was uh, pretty good with uh, its unemployment insurance infrastructure. You know, there was a lot of stories about how these systems were decades old. And at least in Minnesota, they weren't bogged down by that type of thing. Right. And I think I think those are, you know, there there are multiple parts of that that are important. It's, it's not just the generosity on paper of your benefits. It's how quickly did you get that money to people when they needed it? And like you said, Minnesota is, is a place where sort of the pipes of bureaucracy were well set up and, and they were prepared, you know, whether it was going to be a, a normal recession or in this case, something more severe and unexpected. They were ready to jump into action. And I think that's, that's why you can see on some of the economic front that there was a little bit less pain there just because it wasn't such a headache for people. People weren't fighting over their checks in the same way they were in other states and they were just ready to adapt. Opening schools, because this was a problem that a lot of people were dealing with just recently. Rhode Island stood out because the governor there put out basically a statewide plan. They wanted to get everybody on the same page to bring students back for in-person instruction. And then also Florida, because they had a already a robust virtual school program because of, you know, hurricanes, a bunch of disaster things that have happened. They already had that infrastructure set up. So when it came time to kids learning remotely from school, they already had a leg up. I think an important thing to note here is that there aren't a lot of states that had just across the board mandates, you know, you have to open or you're going to lose funding. Even in Rhode Island, it's sort of they're trying to get all the schools open, but they recognize, hey, maybe some community might not feel safe or might be having a spike. So what works with Rhode Island is that they made sure that they put aside specific resources for K-12 schools. So they have testing sites that if you're a staff member of one of these K-12 schools, you can go there and you're not going to wait at the line or get kicked off the list that you might elsewhere. They deployed the National Guard to help with staffing needs because schools just aren't equipped to take on all of these extra needs. Now, Florida, on the other hand, like you said, it had a system in place. It, it knows it's dealt with hurricanes in the past. So 
it was prepared for its schools to need to move to this virtual teaching. And, and as any parent from sort of other states in the country can tell you, that can go awry if you don't have the technology and the systems in place. But on the other hand, it, it has been a bit controversial there, you know, among many of the experts that we talked to, that Florida has sort of been so hard line on opening the schools that they've threatened to cut off funding and they've, they've told communities, you know, even if you're experiencing a bad moment, we still want you opening those schools. Now, in their defense, I think schools, you know, a lot of the experts we talked to say schools should be a priority. It's something where you're going to see a lot of harm to kids that you can't necessarily just you know, make up with a summer program or something like that. And so I, I think it's, you know, with a with a place like Rhode Island, it's a matter of prioritizing, right? You know, are you opening bars and, and closing schools? Um, you know, that's something that's that's not really going to have good results down the road. On the other hand, if, if you control the virus first and are cautious in reopening and say, hey, schools are really important and we need to open them, uh, so let's get resources there, you might see a bit more success. Well, it's been an interesting road back. I mean, every state has had a different type of plan to do it. Uh, and, you know, some states, uh, you know, have had some successes. So uh, it's just a good look at how they did it and, and, and why it worked. Tucker Doherty, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're waiting for the emergency use authorization, and the drug companies have just made a lot of it. So hopefully this is going to be not just a therapeutic, it's going to be much more than a therapeutic. You're going to get better, you're going to get better fast, just like I did. Joining us now is Ed Silverman, Pharmalot columnist and senior writer at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about some more information we're getting about vaccines and people's willingness to take them once they come out, once they get approved. Unfortunately, it's not trending the right way. The share of Americans who say they're likely to get a COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it comes out is starting to drop. I think it's about 58 percent overall of the public say they would get vaccinated right when it is approved. So, Ed, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing from these new polls. It's actually a big drop from only several weeks earlier. In mid-August, the same question was asked and 69 percent said they'd be willing to get a vaccine, a COVID vaccine, as soon as it was available. Now, in mid-October, it's down 11 percentage points. And I think that reflects a few things. Anyone following the news knows that President Trump, for weeks, months, has touted that we'll see a vaccine, gee, maybe before the election. That's transparent, convenient comment he's repeatedly made that benefits his re-election campaign, obviously. That sort of politicization put some people off because concern that, gee, maybe the vaccine will be available before it's right, before it's fully proven to be safe and effective. Concern for some may have been reinforced when, in fact, two different companies, AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, both paused their trials of vaccines. AstraZeneca is actually still on hold here in the U.S., even though it's resumed in other countries. So you've got some concerns just about the process. And this is really apart from or on top of any concerns that some segment of the population has had about any vaccine 
going back however long. But that's really a minority of the country. Now we're seeing concerns, much more widespread concerns, unfortunately. And that's interesting because that was the point that I wanted to bring up as well, is that we are seeing pauses in clinical trials. We are seeing the uh, CEOs of these pharma companies coming out and saying, hey, well, we're following the science. We're taking our time with it. So on their half of it, it is kind of going slow the way it's supposed to be and being done the right way. So it is kind of this messaging that I think a lot of people are getting confused with. But beyond that, even communities of color are saying that they're less likely to take the vaccine, which could also be pretty problematic. Well, that reflects some other issues that I suppose won't surprise people who are paying attention to what's going on in the United States. Because if you drill down further into the survey data, there's a striking racial disparity. The poll found that 59% of whites indicated they would get vaccinated as soon as the vaccine is ready. That's down from 70% in mid-August. So that part accounts drop that we were just discussing. Another piece of this, though, and I think this is what's illuminating what you just noted, only 43% of blacks said they would pursue a vaccine as soon as it's available. And that's down from 65% in mid-August. So it's dropping among you know a large swath of the U.S. population, but more so among blacks. And I think that reflects a few different things. One, of course, is the issues or the reasons that we were just discussing, but it also reflects this growing chasm in how white Americans and black Americans perceive the healthcare system in this country. And that, unfortunately, however many blacks, reflects decades of distrust, and that's only been magnified further during the pandemic. One of the other interesting things that came out of this poll was the effect that President Trump getting coronavirus had on people. It did seem to move the needle a little bit on people's willingness to wear masks and practice social distancing, maybe not so much on the vaccine front or anything like that. But at least in some areas, people seeing the president get it kind of changed some people's minds, at least. I'm just going to refer to some of the data to uh, fill in a couple of the blanks, because folks were asked, based on the news that Trump tested positive for the virus, are you more or less likely to wear a mask? And 57% said somewhat or much more likely. Not surprisingly, these answers often vary between Republicans and Democrats. 55% of Republicans said they'd be somewhat or much more likely to wear a mask, whereas 66% of Democrats said they would do so. And when it comes to practicing social distancing, again, there were differences. Overall, in the public, 54% said they'd more likely or somewhat more likely practice social distancing now that they learned Trump contracted the virus. But breaking it down, that was 51% of Republicans and 64% of Democrats. So there's still some, unfortunately, political differences or perceptions, depending upon who you talk to, depending upon how they identify themselves politically, if not ideologically. And that speaks, I guess, to the larger polarization we continue to see over the last several months about wearing a mask. Ed Silverman, Armalot columnist and senior writer at Stat News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Stay safe. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.